Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome into another episode of NucleCast. I am your host, as always, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us a special guest who is unlike any of our previous guests. You may know him. He's one of the nation's leading thinkers about innovation. That is Steve Blank. He is, of course, a professor at Stanford. He's the co-founder of the Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation, and he is the author of the four steps to the epiphany. Steve, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Uh, thanks for having me, Adam. Now, we don't normally think and talk about innovation on NucleCast because the nuclear world is not exactly uh, an ecosystem where innovation is sort of one of the key words. But I thought by having you on, we might be able to at least entice some of our listeners and some within the nuclear enterprise to think about more innovative ways. And, you know, there's, we're having, you know, the nuclear world has such high levels of security, such low levels of, of risk tolerance. And so therefore everything takes a lot longer to do. The safety is impeccable, which is a good thing, of course, when you deal with nukes. But I wonder, is there still room for innovation? And you just had a great op-ed a few days ago in Defense News, I think, and you offered a whole host of ways that we could be more innovative in the national security space. And I thought we could bring it here to Nuclecast. Great. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Happy to, happy to talk about it. Where do you, where do you want to start? Well, so you offered uh, five uh, I sort of changes that we could implement to be in your article and this the op-ed from the other day that you thought that we could be more innovative, that we could bring it into DOD, and of course, this you know Congress would be playing a critical role in this. So, as we think about introducing innovation and particularly in in the nuclear world where we we have high levels of of concern about ensuring the weapons and ensuring the science and security how do you see us as being able to still be innovative well you know i don't have to remind your listeners is that uh, you know the nuclear establishment was probably the most innovative part of the us in the 50s and 60s i mean in World War II, we we essentially created the establishment in two and a half years, right? In the 50s through the 60s, we were innovating in both of the national labs because they were competing like, you know, Microsoft and Google. I mean, it was like every every year there was a new weapons design and new set of things. And so one on the technology, we knew how to innovate at speed. Um, that is, the, the product designers uh, were way ahead of the organizational designers. Yet at the same time, 
I want to remind your listeners that the organization itself, uh, organizational design, was radically innovative when LeMay came in and organized what was then the Strategic Air Command. It was a essentially a bunch of rabble who was leftovers from World War II and, and strategic bombing of Germany and Japan and, and organized a strategic air command as one of the legs of the, what became the triad, which lasted for about you know a good 50 years and could say it's still on today. So there was also organizational design. And on top of that, um, we put in methods for security and control that and then eventually permissive action links and the rest. And, and so we were incredibly innovative. The, the problem is, is then when you become a dominant market share owner or, or superpower or whatever, the product people, and in this I, in case I mean the engineers and the organizational innovators, um, tend to get pushed down. And the executors, the ones that run process and procedure and whatever, then dominate the organization in both leadership and control and, and management, et cetera. Um, and that becomes interesting because innovation then dies. It no longer leads an organization. It, it might at best be some, you know, little playground in the corner that never, you know, never actually ends up in control. By the way, none of that is wrong when you're the dominant power. That is, when we were the only superpower left after the Cold War and when we were dealing with non-nation states, none of this mattered. It was fine. Um, but, you know, the thing I like to point to is today we look at the holes in the Gobi Desert and, like, realize someone else is innovating, you know, at a lot <laughs> faster than we are. And to be honest, I think that's the wrong benchmark. I think we should be, like, embarrassed as hell when we look at North Korea, a country with a gross national product of less than Facebook, and look at their rate of innovation. I mean, you know, what did they do? They've created five generations of intermediate and intercontinental ballistic missiles in the last seven years. And, you know, Sentinel's going to be deployed in 10 years and cost $100 billion. <laughs> um, again, that should be our benchmark is like, well, wait a minute. Innovation is no longer have we come up with smart things. Is Are we able to deploy new things with speed and urgency and alacrity? And, and, and then we could go down to the list of of activities we need to move with speed and urgency, the first thing we need to do is say, how come we can't keep up with North Korea, let alone China? So that's the, kind of the the big picture. And I have some suggestions to to Congress and the executive branch about in that article about how we should organize and how we should take advantage of maybe the last part of this conversation, and then I'll stop, um, is that unlike the first half of our uh, of our world in the 50s, 60s, maybe through the turn of the century, where all the tools and technology we needed were owned by the DOD and national security uh, establishment. Um, that's no longer true. Um, most of the stuff, including a good chunk of the things we need to think about in the nuclear establishment, are now available via commercial tech. Obviously, we still own some very exquisite, unique stuff we want to keep inside the wire. But but there's a lot of things we just don't spend time getting out of the building and looking at going, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you could buy this stuff off the shelf. Uh, so I'll, I'll pause there. And, and uh, now it's your turn. So how do you see, you know, the sort of the very, you know, very straight laced, very stilted, you know, military folks and, you know, the sort of the West Coast generators of technology who are very different in personality and sort of outlook. How do you bring these folks together 
to, you know, achieve that, that magic that helped us, like you very clearly point to, you know, that allowed us. And I think about, there's a great book about the development of the ICBM. I think it's called like a fiery peace and a cold war. Oh yeah. Bernard, so, about Bernard Shriver and the, and yeah. the Atlas. There are great books about the Navy's program as well, about at the same time, the Air Force was innovating, you know, Rick over and the whole nuclear Navy and the Polaris and the, you know, the whole, I mean, that was just an amazing burst of energy. But to answer your question, this starts in the top. I mean, every organization, and, and I would assume the nuclear establishment as well, has set of uh, innovators where I call them sitting in the basement. I mean, there are folks railing about the organization that won't let them innovate and, and the rest. But it really takes leadership from the top to understand that a healthy organization is ambidextrous, which is a $10 word for being able to chew gum and walk at the same time, meaning an organization that could execute and innovate simultaneously. And and that's number one. And number two is the recognition is you can't do that sitting inside of a building with no windows. You need to get out of the building and, and not tell people what you're doing, but spend a lot of time um, doing what I call a technical terrain walk going out and seeing for the first time, look, there's sun, there's sunlight, but also here's what other vendors are doing, not just our, our established primes, but here's what's possible with other sources of technology we may not have considered and, and other sources of innovation we may not have considered. And also for the first time, being able to go up to a whiteboard and draw me how our adversaries have been able to uh, adapt and adopt and innovate faster than we have. And if you can't do those three things, then then this nation, notion of talking about innovation really doesn't matter because you're not serious about it. So there are really, as I said, three things. One is leadership on the top that understands that, that the nuclear enterprise now needs to be ambidextrous. Uh, two is to get out of the wire and actually do, a, uh, and not just a one time, but you know, a couple times a year, go out and circulate with, make sure we all understand what's available outside. And three is have a deep understanding, and I mean deep, of how our adversaries are able to do this. Because, again, when you used to be the leader, it's, it's hard to kind of realize that someone else might have come up with a better idea, both organizationally, as, and I'm not even talking about technically. Um, those holes in the Gobi Desert should be a real wake-up call to, to us, and so should the ability of, uh, of all the, the smaller regional actors who are capable of reaching the homeland now to to kind of tell us that there are other things we ought to be paying attention to, um, and particularly their ability to organize and, and innovate at speed. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't care if we had to adopt a North Korean method of innovation, and I'm not suggesting that. But we sure <laughs> ought to understand how it worked, because I don't think we do. I, we certainly don't understand the Chinese model. Um, and, uh, and I think we do that to our detriment. Um, so... Uh, so that's now, where it would start. W one of the big areas that, you know, we're sort of having a lot of challenge with innovating and innovating effectively because of security concerns and cyber issues and is in nuclear command and control and communications. Yep. This is, we want to go from essentially an analog system to a digital system and yep. we, we don't want our adversaries to penetrate it. Uh, and, and so there's been, you know, this, uh, I've seen a lot of models for how we think we're going to go about this and, and still maintain security. What would you say or what advice would you give for trying to build this kind of a system? 
Well, you know, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in the nuclear establishment. As, as we were talking before we started, the last time I involved with nukes was uh, when I was a young airman working on nuclear-armed B-52s at Wordsmith Air Force Base. Um, and then I laughed saying, well, those planes are gone. And, of course, they're not. They were, <laughs> they were, I don't know, they were 25 years old when I worked on them, and then now they're probably 40-some-odd years later. Um, but... Um, that said, I did have some experience uh, and have seen uh, things from the NSA uh, when some innovators uh, worked with the nuclear establishment to generate a more modern method for um, key generation, for uh, co-generation. And it got all the way up to the system until somebody said it didn't meet, you know, box X and killed it. Um, and instead of saying, well, maybe we should relook at box X because you know, the world uses bits now, <laughs> and, and there's digital stuff. And, and rather than, than that creating a, maybe it's time to look at our existing uh, things that we actually developed in the 60s and 70s, you know, the existing processes didn't change. And so something that would have saved literally thousands of man hours a year, thousands, on just this one tiny project, um, instead of changing, how did how are we still doing things, actually got killed. And this is when I go back to leadership. Um, it is time to relook at a lot of the command and control processes and security processes we have, not to make them less rigorous, but to make them, um, make them think about how we might operate uh, in the 21st century. You know, and, and I just want to acknowledge some of the old analog things we have in place are actually um, a great buffer for security because, you know, no one, no one could, other than us, could figure out how to use those systems or hack into them because they're not connected to anything. I mean, there's goodness in, in some of that. You know, the, the things that will still work in, a, in an EMP pulse are probably the stuff that's left in, in Stratcom because a good number of it is still mechanical. And I'm saying that only half facetiously. Um, but, but my point is, a lot of these innovations, when they run into security and, and other concerns and policy concerns, should actually generate, well, why do we still have the security and policy rather than, well, that's because that's the reg. And if we keep running into that's the reg, but there's no one on the other side saying, well, maybe we ought to be relooking at each one of these regs, you're never going to have innovation. And, and that's not going to happen from the bottom up. That really takes senior leadership and their staff to say, okay, we absolutely need, you know, 100% positive control um, of these weapons and, and technology, but we are, you know, 75 years into the, into the organization. What do we need to do to, to see if we could actually make it more efficient? Yeah, well, you know, it's, you're hitting on some of the themes that I, as somebody who's worked in the system, you know, my entire adult life, who, you know, I've been frustrated over the years because it often seems that, you know, there's these, these small fiefdoms and people know what they control and they, they want to control it because it, it gives them, you know, they exist for a reason now because they have this, how do you, how do you take an organization that is not built to be efficient? It's, it's perhaps it's built to be effective, you know, it effectively controls you know, nuclear weapons and their use and their security. But how do you get it to be innovative? And then one of the things that I've seen is that the that there is a lack of sort of an innovative mindset because once you 
become part of a culture and you say, Hey, listen, this is what I'm going to do. This is my career. And then you, you, you meld into that culture. And if that culture doesn't have a culture of innovation, then you become, you you know, you don't innovate. So how do you sort of re, you know, refit a culture to where it looks to innovation and it doesn't say no, it says yes, but, or, you know, how, how do you make that, how do you make that happen? Because the DOD has, you know, we, we brought in, you know, the former CEOs of Google and, you know, we've had these efforts underway. Um, and, you know, we've looked at, uh, acquisition reform. I think I, I did an acquisition reform study and we, we found that there had already been more than 150 acquisition reform studies. We knew what to do. We just couldn't make it happen. So how do we actually make these things happen? Yeah. So uh, again, I want to be careful about what I'm about to say, because it applies to, to things that are little less, um, if you get them wrong, have severe consequences. <laughs> So, so let me start with that. Um, but but there are get to yes programs that are pretty easy and not sorry, not pretty easy, but pretty well understood in the commercial world. As I said, it starts at the top. And often I find that the top is not the problem. They go, you know, senior leadership, even our executors say, give me great. I'll take innovation in a 10 pound bag. Where do, where do I get it? And then there's this phrase that's kind of well known called the frozen middle, the people you just described. I came to work. This is my job for the last 15 years. It's about power or it's about position. Or sometimes it's about fear that I'm going to lose my power and position. And I don't know what's over the horizon. Um, and on the bottom in every organization are innovators banging on the wall, trying to do innovation heroics, meaning going around the system, trying to make something happen. And again, in your organization, that's incredibly discouraged because you don't want to do that. We live in a world of, at least when I was around, incredible checklists. You you know, there was, I'm sure, a secret manual for how you went to the bathroom and which, which way you unzipped and whatever. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure General LeMay at the time had one. But uh, but there is a way uh, to do this. And it's, a first of all, to realize, I'm going to say it again, you need an ambidextrous organization. And the best um, example in the commercial world is SpaceX. Um, <clears throat> again, not directly relevant, but gives you a model. SpaceX launches every four and a half days from two pads on Cape Canaveral, one in Vandenberg. And that execution has to be pristine. Uh, Operational excellence, no deviation from the checklist. Sometimes there are human beings on top of those rockets. It is checklist-driven, anal-retentive, world-class operational people. But at the same time, they have another group in Texas whose uh, charter is blow shit up. Um, and by the way, that's Elon's mantra to them. They're building the next generation called Starship. Um, and Elon's mantra is if you're not blowing things up, you're not innovating. And the more interesting one is if you're not blowing things up fast enough, you're not innovating at the right clock speed. You're not innovating fast enough. Now you would think that you want these two organizations as silos completely separated, but that's not the key idea. In fact, this actually applies to the nuclear establishment. They actually connect in horizontal ways that the learning is bidirectional. And this does apply to your organization. You don't want the equivalent of your Texas people anywhere near the operational side. But they're actually teaching the operational side, well, here's what we learned about, you know, engine temperature and pressure that you could kind of crank up without actually blowing the thing up. And if you do that, you could get another 100 pounds of payload. 
And the people on the ground are teaching the next generation folks, here's what we wish the ground service equipment had an access panel to. Or by the way, when you're building the umbilicals, make sure they go over here, not over here. And so you can imagine an organization designed where the innovative stuff is happening that doesn't screw up the operational stuff, but it's interconnecting. And the, the line in the commercial world is execution pays your salary, but innovation pays your pension. And you can make the equivalent here um, for the nuclear establishment. The second thing we, we've done inside of, and, and by the way, that was built ground up as an organizational design. How you retrofit an existing organization is you start a get to yes program. And a get to yes program in your establishment has to be a little more controlled than a, than a commercial company. But we've done in a commercial company is simply that the, we established a, what we call appendix A, um, in every process, policy, acquisition, you know, you know, execution silo. And what it means by that is we have our standard handbooks, um, and their policy and their security and their acquisition. But there was no room for deviation for anything, even for the innovators. And so we said there are Appendix A's. And Appendix A are if you're doing innovation, that is, you're not affecting, you know, like it, somebody would lose some fissile material or something else, you're allowed to refer to Appendix A. Well, what's an Appendix A? Well, here was the real trick. None of the executors, security policy or whatever, are capable of writing Appendix A. So we actually have the innovators start with a wish list of what would go in their acquisition appendix A, what would go in the security appendix A, and then we have a set of policy committees that actually approve, that are made up of innovators and executors, and it goes all the way to the top of the senior leadership. If it doesn't get approved in the, again, in a, in a large company within 72 hours, you know, in the DOD, I'd be happy with three weeks, but you can now have additions to this policy. And in the commercial world, the heuristic is, will it put the company at risk or will it damage our core business or whatever? You could have certainly those equivalents a lot more stringent in the nuclear establishment, but you could build an ecosystem design where innovation is not only occurring, but it's actually changing the organization as we speak with the innovators helping to write, not changing core policy, but helping write and create innovation policy that doesn't directly threaten the executors. Does that make sense? And that's one, one tool and technique. And we could build and, and talk about for a long time multiples of these policies. At the same time, it really, it really is incumbent on training uh, the middle management that your world is not going to end. And, and here's where I see a lot of this go wrong. Senior leadership on top gets it. They go, we got it. I want this. We've done this study. We've had McKinsey and Google and everybody else in here. And they send out a memo. And maybe in a good organization, they'll send out two memos. And they'll believe, well, I gave my orders. It must be done. Not understanding that there's, you know, 75 years of cultural history you need to change. And unless you work hard at this, it's not going to happen. Uh, so I'll stop there. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. 
Yeah, I, I just, one of the big challenges as I see is that as we think about, you know, for business, the, the whole model of success is I'm going to do more for less. And that's how I succeed. Whereas when you think about, you know, somebody who uh, runs a government agency, they go to Congress and they say, oh man, whew, I can't do half my mission on the budget. I need more to do less. I, I just can't do this mission without twice as much funding. And so it's it's sort of the exact opposite model. And then Congress says, well, you know, don't you, you know, we'll give you more money, but don't make any mistakes whatsoever. And so I wonder, even when you want to innovate in the Department of Defense or in the nuclear world, you have these external pressures and these these you know, the funders and others who are putting demands on you such that you say, geez, man, I'd really like to innovate, but you know, the risks are too high to innovate. Yeah. Adam, I think you're missing where that's coming from. Um, okay. Um, so there's a missing component and it starts all the way on the top. Congress is coin operated. And, and what I mean by that, it lives on campaign donations, particularly the appropriations committees. And if you look I mean, it's public information about who donates to them. And and that money comes from a place called K Street, where all the lobbyists live in Washington. And then you look at, well, who is most threatened in the nuclear establishment for change? Besides individuals, they're the existing prime contractors. So, in fact, without understanding that the prime contractors, who are clearly important for our national security, don't get me wrong, it's not like if the primes disappeared, we'd be better, we'd actually be much worse off. But their motivation is for no change. Um, in fact, uh, their motivation is for more change, but give me more money for doing more things that look like the things I'm already doing, because they also have the same problem. And, and their problem is their business model, meaning how they make money, fancy business model, fancy word for how they make money, is predicated on the old and existing system continuing, um, because they haven't been forced to think about what would a new business model mean? Instead of continuous innovation and continuous upgrade, uh, the military model is, oh, you want a new X, just a change? Uh, you know, in your Tesla or any car now, your software gets upgraded over the air. Well, on the DOD, you know, you can't even move the paperwork for a change across the Pentagon for less than $100 million. Um, and, and so what we're missing are the Honeywells, et cetera, and, and I'm not just picking on them. It just happens to be how their model is designed. So unless we look at the root cause about why does Congress, um, who's whispering in their ear, um, we're kind of miss, missing the point, is that the entire ecosystem it needs to be thought through. Um, and again, I'm not just picking on anybody. And no, there's no malice involved. But because it's, it's run by capitalism, not by command and control, we have to work the entire ecosystem and make sure that they're also motivated to make these changes. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it does. And, and I see, and I know you've had some involvement in, you know, like at Air Force Global Strike Command, which, you know, they own the ICBM force and the bomber leg. They have, you know, they have strike works, which is part of this effort to be innovative and to, to bring in small companies to, to help uh, introduce innovation do you see the DIU and these other types of efforts to introduce and bring innovation into, uh, you know, 
every aspect of DOD, the services, you know, uh, SOCOM has its own effort. Cybercom has its own effort. Do you see these as being sort of the right vehicle and the right venue to bring in, you know, and introduce innovation into the DOD? Is that a, a effort that's working? So let me start by saying I, I'm just blown away that in the last five years we've stood up over a hundred or so incubators and accelerators across the DOD. It's massive and it's great. Um, and it's clearly at minimum shaped culture up and down, right? People now use the word innovation and, and kind of maybe sort of know what it means. Um, but I have to say that, uh, you know, maybe SOCOM being an example and maybe they're uh, an exception and maybe there are other except. In fact, I will guarantee you there are other exceptions I'm missing. But as a whole, it's mostly been innovation theater, not innovation deployed and delivered. And by theater, I mean, looks good, lots of demos, you know, lots of whatever, you know, users want it. And then you go look at the major defense acquisition programs or, or even the programs of record and go, okay, how many of those came out of those incubators and accelerators? And, and where's the budget and authority for deployment? Oh, well, we haven't fixed that problem. That's, an, that's a PBE acquisition problem. But, but look at my demo. It, look, it, it really, <laughs> no, no. But how do we get this in the hands of the warfighter? Or how do we get this integrated into a system? We, we've, we've worked on the easy part. My summary is we've worked on the easy part first. And I don't mean standing up an incubator is easy. I, I, I just mean, you know, the hard part is we haven't thought about what's the end-to-end process from demo to delivery, um, and and what budget and authority, and don't just tell me it's an OTA or a mid-tier acquisition or something. Yeah, 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 we just put a, we just painted the pig, you know, blue. It's it's still a pig. Um, so unless we actually work on the end-to-end processes, how do things go from these incubators and accelerators? And as I said, there are exceptional examples that we've actually done this. Um, but I haven't seen too many of them in the nuclear establishment. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It so, does. so the answer is absolutely. Um, I'm blown away by the by the efforts, the the, the talent, and whatever. Um, but but there's a broken part, which is yeah, that's nice. Well, and, and again, all these we got to remember that um, if it involves a contractor, by definition, they're likely a saboteur. And, and I don't mean that, again, they're doing things that are, you know, actively, you know, physically throwing wrenches in. But, you know, a large percentage of time, innovation threatens a commercial business model of an existing contractor or, or someone who owns that program. And now you're saying, think about it. If you're telling somebody, well, I could make this uh, for a 20th of the existing system, the price of the 20th of the existing system. Do you think the existing owner of that contract is celebrating <laughs> over their dead body, right? And, and we just don't simply design that into the system. If we understood that, it were, if it were me, I'd go back to that prime or contractor and figure out how to make them exist the same amount of profit by getting the hell out of the way than, than staying in the way. It, it wouldn't be like all oh, those darn, you know, contractors. So let's put them out of business. I'd be talking to them, figuring out how do we change your business model so you're still as profitable, um, but you move at speed and urgency and actually integrate these these uh, new ideas rather than stand in the way of them. And I don't mean to beat them up, but unless you think about what are the obstacles for deployment, not just the obstacle, the obstacles for demos, 
we're not going to get things in the hands of the people who need them in the time they need them. Now, as a, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I wanted to just give you, I, I don't normally do this, but if I, if I lend you my uh, genie in a bottle and you get to rub that lamp and, and make, you know, make three wishes, what would those three wishes be that, to help my community? Well, you know, there's one wish I actually, uh, and I, maybe the wishes. I wish I knew the answer to this, but but if you take a look at um, all the elements of, of you know Stratcom of uh, you know the Columbia class boomers or the you know manned uh, aircraft like B-21s or other components of the uh, of our deterrence, they kind of distort the services budgets. Uh, for conventional warfare. If you really think about it, um, we're not going to get to use our nuclear assets multiple times. Um, We're probably, if God forbid we ever use them, they're going to be in a short period of time. Yet we use our conventional assets over the last 75 years often. Um, Yet we're asking the same people to, to build the system and budget, and I'm talking about the services, to figure out which one they're fighting for. Is it I'm fighting for the Columbia program or am I fighting for literally redesigning the Navy for tritable systems and building a ship, shipyards of the 21st century for conventional weapons? The same for the Air Force. Uh, am I building, I mean, it's embarrassing that people are buying drones en masse from Turkey and we don't have the equivalent at least to build thousands or tens of thousands of new arsenals for aircraft. But we are spending a good chunk of the Air Force budget on the B-21 Raider. And it's not that we shouldn't do that. It's that, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm asking is I wish I was smart enough to figure out how to deconflict these two priorities inside the services because we've asked them to make a dessert topping and floor wax in the same product. It's just, <laughs> I don't know how to solve that problem. Uh, and then probably uh, Jeannie, uh, request number two is I'd... Um, I'd actually ask the services uh, to think a little harder is about how do you build an end-to-end innovation process, not just um, innovation theater. And, and I don't mean there's been any bad things, but, but now that we've created innovation theater, meaning lots of demos in these uh, you know, startups inside of the services and, and commands, we've learned a lot. What do we need to do to connect all those pieces to deployment? Um, and smart people are already drawing those diagrams. And then it's simply taking those smart people, go, oh, I wish we had these authorities or these authorities. You know what? Congress pays attention, you know? And that maybe at the, the third thing is I would actually spend time going to the existing, uh, certainly in the, in the nuclear ecosystem, talking to the existing contractors and saying, I want you to be creative as well. I can't continue on your current business model, but I don't want to make you less profitable. Big idea. I want you to make as much or more money going forward, but I guarantee you it won't be the way we're buying today. We need to work together to figure out what that business model looks like so you're a partner here. And by the way, if you don't do that, I will shut you down. You're not going to get any more contracts. So I am serious. I want to work with you to make your company more profitable as we move forward at a clock speed that no longer makes us a near-peer competitor. We've never been in this situation. 
we're, you know, if we're honest with the American people, we'd realize in a number of these areas, we're now the near peer. Um, and that's not a good place for the country. Um, you know, I want our kids to, and, and, and their kids to sleep safe and secure in their beds, not speaking Mandarin. Um, so uh, with that, I, I, I guess that those are my three wishes. All right. Well, Steve Blank, thank you for joining us on Nuclecast. That was unlike anything we've ever had. It was a great to discuss innovation. It's not something we think about on a regular basis. And so it was certainly due for us to think about. So thanks for joining thanks for us. Having me, Adam. And thanks to you, the listeners and stick around and we'll see you on the next uh, episode. Well, we just had a great episode with Steve Blank, one of the nation's leading innovation experts. And it was, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I've, I've written a couple of articles about creativity and PME, but this idea of innovation being brought into DOD is not something that I've spent a ton of time looking at. And so it was great to hear from Steve and hear what he thought were some of the challenges we face and how we can more effectively innovate. And then the the hard part, of course, is, is in the nuclear world where innovation is sort of never the main focus, but yet we have to innovate because of the adversaries we have. And like, like you, Steve pointed out, you know, the, the North Koreans are being pretty innovative and they're you know, they progress through five generations of missile development and warhead development to sort of get to where in a, you know, roughly a decade where they have capabilities that are quite modern. And so the, this idea and this concept of innovation is really one that we're going to have to think about and tackle in an established bureaucracy like we have in the nuclear world. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumthall. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.